Welcome to Reading with Joy. This summer, we're reading Piranesi by Susanna Clarke, a book about a man who lives in a house that loves him. So get yourself a cup of tea, sit down, and let's begin. I was in a house with many rooms. The sea sweeps through the house. Sometimes it swept over me, but always I was saved. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the final week of Reading with Joy, where we are uh, thinking about the final chapter of Susanna Clarke's mysterious and beautiful novel, Piranesi. Rather fittingly, I am recording this podcast not in the UK. I am out and abroad, so if you hear some noises in the background, that is um, because there are some exciting things happening outside the apartment I'm staying in. Uh, but I thought it was rather fitting that I'd be recording this podcast uh, far away from my own house, so to speak, because this is a chapter about Piranesi exiting, uh, maybe being exiled, um, but really leaving the house. And we finally get to see how he will experience the world and how he will come to some reconciliation or, or fullness through this kind of bittersweet movement away from the house. Now, before we dive in, I just want to say how much I've enjoyed reading this book with you all this year, how much I've loved getting to have the wonderful guests who have joined me from Malcolm Geit and Joel and uh, Matthew Rothis Moser and Haley Stewart. And all of my guests were just such a pleasure to have on the show. And as happens every year when I host these book clubs, I feel that my own reading of this book was enriched and deepened, and I made many connections and noticed things I wouldn't have noticed without my guests, but also in the beautiful comments and thoughts that you all posted on Twitter and Instagram, I was so enriched, and it's really been a pleasure and a blessing to explore this book with you this year. So I really enjoyed it, and I just thank all of you for listening. Just to give a little quick overview of what I want to do today... I want to first talk about the chapter, tie up some of the kind of thematic streams, strings that we've been talking about, uh, from isolation um, to alienation and kindness and Barfield's idea of participation, and then just to offer my own reflections on this book and why it was a book that stuck with me. And I hope that when you finish listening to this podcast, you will go and share what you will take away from this book with your fellow readers on Instagram. Facebook and Twitter. And if not there, I would just love to know in an email. Um, send me an email at thejoinusthebrave at gmail.com. I'm not going to do too much summary of the chapter itself because, of course, most of the happenings transpired in the previous chapter. Um, so in this in this podcast, I want to simply kind of talk through the three statues that he talks about. Now, of course, the general gist of this chapter is um, Matthew Rose Sorensen's re-entry into the world. And his kind of wrestling with what the house means um, now that he's back in, quote unquote, the real world, and who he is. Because we've had, you can see that there is a clear element of mental illness or disassociation that's happened, right? He's experienced this great trauma, which caused him to forget a part of himself and kind of recreate a new identity that was able to protect him. And I think something I found really interesting about this about this book is that usually when we have depictions of mental illness or trauma, there's this kind of this pity. And of course, we have a pity towards Matthew O. Sorensen, but you see that in becoming Piranesi, he became someone who could protect himself and take care of himself. 
and it was a response of of perhaps of trauma but that he it was it was also something that protected him and made him safe and made him beautiful and loving um and i think that that while we can still see that as a tragedy there's also something resilient and beautiful in his and even in this kind of brokenness so then he becomes piranesi who has this beautiful relationship with the house who trusts and who knows that everything matters and, and relates to it but now he is aware of both parts of these these bits of himself i love when he talks about kind of piecing together who matthew Sorensen is from his many many clothes and then the part of him that's piranesi saying i don't need this many clothes and why do we have to pay for things um, but in being aware of both these things, he's kind of beginning to negotiate, who am I now? And at the center of that question is figuring out what, what the house was and what the house is to the real world. So to talk about that, I just want to reflect quickly on the three uh, statues that he mentions in the entry, Statues Again, um, just before the final section. So he says, I thought that in this new, old world, the statues would be irrelevant. I did not imagine that they would continue to help me. But I was wrong. When faced with a person or situation I do not understand, my first impulse is to still look for a statue that will enlighten me. Now, I think what's interesting about this is when he says, I look for a statue that will enlighten me, that implies that he's still um, in relationship with the house. You know, and the next section opens with a statement, in my mind are all the tides, their seasons, their ebbs and flows. In my mind are all the halls, the endless procession, the intricate pathways. So he still has the house somehow kind of present in him. And he returns to it mentally. Um, and that seems to be how they get to the house. It's this kind of entry into a, a real place, but they can only be entered into through um, this kind of imaginative ritual. Um, he goes there to find meaning and to find comfort. And the first thing he talks about is how he understands Dr. Ketterly. And I think this is so important and goes back to these ideas of alienation. So before I read this section, I want to talk about um, what we introduced at the very beginning, which was this theme of kindness and alienation, these two different themes. The first alienation, we'll talk about that first, is the idea that Owen Barfield, um, who was one of the Inklings, talked about, which was that uh, he said there was a pure cussedness in modern life that we understood more of the world than we ever had before, but it didn't mean anything to us. The more we were able to understand minute aspects, the more we were able to break things down to smaller bits, the less it generated meaning or significance or importance to us. And Barfield believed that prior to modernity, even, even prior before that, kind of pre-modern but even more ancient man had this more reciprocal relationship with the world where the world meant something to him. It was a part of a cosmic drama where everything um, participated and meant something and was interconnected. And and so we talked about how this alienation comes in the sense of meaning that we might generate from the world, but that that's also coincided with an alienation from the world in our actual kind of relationship to nature and, and to the environment, as we say. Even the idea of the environment kind of communicates alienation, right? Because it implies that somehow the world is different than me, that I'm not inherently enmeshed and immersed within the world. So you have alienation from from the world um, physically, that we don't understand or relate to nature in a more kind of natural, intuitive way, but also that nature doesn't mean anything to us. And this reflects also a sense of alienation from each other 
and also from kind of meaning in the more spiritual aspect of our lives, alienation from from God or or from from a, a sense of of potency and meaning and spirituality, and um, and I think this is what's really depicted in Ketterly. Um, he says, when I think of Dr. Ketterly, an image rises up in my mind. It is a memory of a statue that stands in the 19th Northwestern Hall. It is the statue of a man kneeling on his plinth. A sword lies at his side. Its blade is broken into five pieces. Round about lie other broken pieces, the remains of a sphere. The man has used his sword to shatter the sphere because he wanted to understand it. That's the really important part. But now he finds that he has destroyed both sphere and sword. This puzzles me, but at the same time, this puzzles him, but at the same time, part of him refuses to accept the sphere is broken and worthless. He has picked up some fragments and stares at them intently in the hope that they will eventually bring him some new knowledge. Now, I think in this, we have kind of a picture of the alienation of the modern world. Um, you know, Ketterly is this picture of the man who has broken the globe into smaller and smaller pieces that so he can understand it. But in doing so, he's broken the very thing that that he intended to understand. And I think this is a picture of, of modern man, of the alienation we can experience. Um, it's not necessary, and again, Barfield didn't think that we just all needed to return to a pre-scientific world, but that there was something kind of inherently broken in the way we relate to the world now. That we've broken the world into smaller, smaller pieces, um, and we can understand minute aspects of it, but we don't see it as a whole. We don't see what it was intended to be, and we can't derive any meaning from it. So Ketterly kind of is this tragedy to me, I think. It, it, wasn't a, it didn't need to be a tragedy, but he is. You know, he looks for the great secret knowledge. It's totally, um, he's locked out from it, right? Because the very way that he sought it was to own, to crush, to look, to, to, to get into smaller, smaller pieces. And so the knowledge and the power and the beauty he sought, he could never attain because he was breaking things into smaller and smaller pieces. He was owning it. And so, you know, Piranesi was able to perceive the beauty in the house because he kind of accepted it with this openness and this sense of looking to the whole and of even kind of a submission to the mystery um, so that he experienced the beauty that Ketterly was trying to get at, but even as he tried to get at it, he made it more and more impossible. And I think this is really a picture of the pure cussedness that, that Barfield describes, the kind of alienation that modern man feels from society. But then we have the picture of Lawrence, Lawrence, uh, Arne Sales, um, which is a very kind of visceral image. He says, the statue represents a heretical pope sitting on a throne. He is fat and bloated. He lolls on his throne, a shapeless mass. The throne is magnificent, but the sheer bulk of the figure threatens to split it in two. He knows that he is repulsive, and you can see by his face that the idea pleases him. He revels in the thought that he is somehow shocking. In his face, there is mingled laughter and triumph. Look at me, he seems to say. Look at me. Now, I think this is kind of the other end of, um, of what Barfield explores. Now, the interesting thing that has kind of been at the heart of this story, right, is that the way that Piranesi enters into this house, this beautiful place where he experiences love and protection, is through an evil act. And this kind of references back to the magician's nephew, where... Um, you know, they stumble into the wood between the worlds and ultimately Narnia, which is a good place, a loving place. Um, but they stumble into it by the magic of, of Uncle Andrew. And so there's this sense that we might think the whole place was infected by that reality. But 
really, that's not the case. Um, it's it's merely that this character, Arn Sales, kind of discovered it through evil means, but that doesn't make the place itself evil. And to me, I think this connects also to um, a large movement in the early, I, I can see parallels, maybe not connects, I see parallels, to even, even Barfield. He was part of this weird group called the Anthropocists. I can never say it quite right. And they... Um, believed that you could access the spiritual world through your mental powers. And of course, what happened with a lot of these groups, like the Anthropocists or like the Theophysists, was that they often ended up stumbling into actual dark spiritual stuff. And um, it's interesting because Lewis uh, was interested in Theosophy, which was a similar kind of like pseudo-cultic philosophical idea um, they believed that there was an objective spiritual world, but they were too philosophical and intelligent and academic to just, you know, go to a church. And uh, Lewis says he was really interested in this a while, but then one of his friends had a complete mental breakdown, kind of like James Ritter, um, and he he felt there was demonic activity involved, and so he was totally scared off from it. But this was kind of a general um, trend in the early in the 20th century when people were dissatisfied with modernism dissatisfied with atheism they felt that there was something more in the world there was something spiritual um and so they thought that they could kind of through their own as are in sales through their own power access control manipulate um, more spiritual elements and of course what we see is that there are spiritual things to manipulate there as as lawrence are sales kind of proves there there's a world to enter into but the problem is that when you when you enter in with that sense of ownership uh, and domination, you corrupt um, the very world you intend to go into, and oftentimes you end up being destroyed by it. So I think it's interesting that he is a heretical pope. Um, he is sitting on a seat that is powerful, um, but that he has he has kind of made. Um, dirty, made incomplete by his attempts to control and overpower. And I think the picture here is that it is right to say that there is more to life than sometimes we experience in the modern world. Um, that there is a spiritual component. But then when we try to go in and control it, we might unlock kind of a darkness uh, that we can't control. And, and that the very nature of life as a gift is that we must receive it. We must be children of the house and not the heretical Pope who really just wants it all to have the attention be on, on him. So then we have this final image. Well, finally two images of Raphael. Um, and really these are kind of the three primary people that Piranesi remembers in his life, right? Um, prior to his, prior to his forgetting, um, with Matthew Sorensen, these are the three people he has experienced in his entire life. The other, the prophet in 16. And he differentiates in these two different um, statues in his mind between Raphael um, uh, being who she was to Piranesi and then who who she is to whoever this man is now. Um, in Piranesi's mind, Raphael is a queen in a chariot, the protector of her people. She is all goodness, all gentleness, all wisdom, all motherhood. That is Piranesi's view of Raphael, because Raphael saved him. Now, I just want to take a moment to say how much I love Raphael. Um, I love Raphael because she is able, um, she to me is the picture of the other theme that we talked about, which is kindness. Now, at the beginning of this podcast series, I talked about how the, 
the antidote to alienation is kindness and that a lot of that comes from the idea that kindness originally the word originated in the idea of my kind my my uh, my kin right and so to be kind it's not just to do nice things it's to relate to someone as though they belong to you not belong to you in an ownership way but that you also belong to them that they are a part of your kindred your tribe your family and that to be kindness is to be related attached connected and that this connects to the whole idea of um, chesed in the old testament that god has a loving kindness towards us so that he relates to humans as though they are his kind that um that he's obligated to us in some sense god chooses to be obligated and that the whole idea of Christ embodying loving kindness was that he literally was our kind. So, you know, obviously with the other and with the prophet, there's no sense that they relate to either Piranesi or the house as their kind. They're alienated. They don't have a sense of obligation. But that's the exact opposite in, in, in 16. She is all goodness, all gentleness, all wisdom, all motherhood. I think it's really significant that he uses this kindred language that she, um, she has this sense almost of, of familial obligation to him, and she takes care of him. And originally, he relates to her in this kind of motherly way, that she's someone who cares for him, protects him. But as he grows in knowledge, and as he begins to reckon with this whole experience in a more grown-up way, he then sees her in a different way. The statue shows a figure walking forward, holding a lantern. It is hard to determine with any certainty the gender of the figure. The way she holds the lantern and peers at whatever ahead, one gets the sense of a huge darkness surrounding her. Above all, I get the sense that she is alone, perhaps by choice, or perhaps because no one else was courageous enough to follow her. Now, I think in this, we have this picture of, um, of the possibility of redemption. And I think we can see this in both a general way, kind of in the themes of the story. Um, we can see the idea that, you know, Barfield has this idea that we are we've lost um, the original participation that we can't see meaning but he also has this hope that we will eventually reach final participation that actually we needed to individuate to understand the world but that maybe there could be a union between scientific knowledge and a sense of wonder maybe that someday we could move back towards reunion but also we just have it as a picture of i think of the possibility of redemption in piranesi's life you know, when she's trying to convince him to come back into the world, he's asking her all about it. And she says it's a world quite different than this one. She says, it's not always a pleasant other world. Pleasant, the other world. There's a lot of sadness in it. A lot of sadness. It's not always like here. Um, but even as she's saying this and acknowledging the sadness of the world, she's beckoning him into it, into reality, into relationship and communion, as we talked about last week. And so in a way, I think this picture of her is a picture of someone who is willing to move into the possibility of redemption from the experience of great sadness and great loss. And um, I love what he says about her and that this is kind of the thing that begins to bring him healing is this kindness, this connection to another human being. Of all the billions of people in this world, Raphael is the one I know best and love most. I just love that, um, but that there's this sense that Piranesi is moved towards redemption and wholeness because of this relationship, this this sharing that they have together. And we get the sense that Raphael also needs Piranesi, 
Maybe there's something in the beauty of his innocence that she also needs to be redeemed, to be close. And I love um, the first that she still wears perfume, and it still makes me think of sunlight and happiness. So I think in these three um, statues, you have this sense of some of the themes of the book being tied together. The sense that there's some great loss in the modern world of knowledge and reciprocity and that Ketterly embodies this because even as he tries to seek for knowledge, he's making it more and more impossible because he he does it with this detached um, and ownership kind of mindset of trying to discover knowledge. Then we have the kind of disturbing picture of the heretical Pope and that it's not correct to seek meaning um, even if we're right that there is a spiritual component, these, these more profound meanings in life, when we seek to control it, when we seek to manipulate it, we may stumble into a darkness and a heaviness that is more than can be controlled and that will cause great evil. But then in Raphael, we see this, this beautiful completion of someone who, rather than trying to um, understand or manipulate or control, simply holds the lantern and walks forward into a darkness in this kind of posture of faith that something might be healed. So this all leads us to the question then of who is Piranesi? Who is Matthew Rose Sorensen? And what ultimately is the house? Now here I want to kind of veer into my own reflections on why this book mattered so much to me. I think as we read this book, at least as I read it, there was this great tension at the heart of it, which was that as we read Piranesi's view of the world, we love it and feel attracted by it. There's this sense of reciprocity and simplicity and beauty and meaning and spirituality that we long to feel, but we just can't because we are modern people. To feel it in the way that Piranesi would feel it would be to not know that it was special. And so when we see Piranesi, we, we honor and delight in and, and kind of wish him to stay in that state of innocence. But at the same time, we're always kind of worried for him too, right? We know that he's being taken advantage of and that in a way it would be, as it is with Ketterly, it would be, um, it would be exploitation to allow him to stay in this state because he is not safe and he is very lonely. But this creates this great tension because we think, what will happen? What will become of the man called Piranesi when he's made aware of the world? Will he lose all of the innocence, all of the beauty? Will he lose the sense of being a beloved child of the house? And I think the reason that touched me so deeply is that I think in some ways I have Piranesi and Matthew Gross Sorensen inside of me. There's a part of me that can feel the profound beauty of the world and that knows everything to be connected and meaningful, that knows myself to be a beloved child of God. And there's a part of me that's experienced the great sadness of the world, um, that as Raphael says, it's not always a pleasant world. There's a lot of sadness in it, a lot of sadness. And as I look at Piranesi, I, I have this almost kind of desperate hope that Piranesi can be okay, that he can find beauty in the world because I too want to be able to be a beloved child of the house, um, even with all of the knowledge and all of the reality that I've experienced. I don't want to forget parts of reality, um, but I want to know, is it possible to be a beloved child of the house in the world? And I think in this final chapter, we get a sense that maybe it is possible. Um, we see Piranesi going to go meet Raphael. And as he passes people in the street, he begins to recognize that, at least in his mind, that they are references to various statues. 
Um, he sees an old man and he says uh, he looked tired and sad. He'd broken veins in his cheeks and a bristly white beard. And as he screwed up his eyes against the falling snow, I realized I knew him. He is shown as a king with a little model of a walled city in one hand. In the other hand, he raises in blessing. And I wanted to seize hold of him and say, in another world, you are a king, noble and good. I have seen it. And then he sees this mother and her children. He realizes that um, these people are real, uh, but that they also have a meaning that's deeper than they themselves can recognize and see. And I think in this, of course, we have some kind of references. I don't. I think we are meant to see a reference to Plato. And of course, Plato has this great analogy where he talks about the forms, where he says, the reality we experience is like a shadow on the wall of a cave, where the real reality is, is the thing that's causing the shadow. And so we are real, just the shadow is real, but our reality is, is founded and, and, and tucked inside of something much more real, some spiritual reality that underpins everything. And in this final scene, Piranesi kind of sees that. He suddenly begins to see the house in the world. He sees Manchester and police stations and credit cards, but that even in this place, uh, the beauty of the house is immeasurable and its kindness infinite. And as I read that, I thought, perhaps it is possible for all of us to live in the world and know that it is the house. Maybe part of the reason this was so significant for me was that every day for many years now, um, I've used Celtic daily prayer and I have prayed the same Psalm every morning. And it says, one thing I have asked of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Now, as soon as I read Paranesi, I started thinking about this phrase of the house of the Lord in a different way, because I realized that even today, as I'm podcasting to you from my friend's flat in Washington, D.C., um, I'm praying that I may dwell in the house of the Lord, even while I'm not even in my own house or in a church. And it's funny because that's this has often been the case with this prayer. I've prayed it all over the world. I've tracked, you know, tracked that book with me everywhere I've gone. Um, and it creates this interesting question of, can I dwell in the house of the Lord when I'm traveling all over the world? But I think that's ultimately what Piranesi is asking. And what he's beginning to experience and what I have begun to see as a challenge is that perhaps we can dwell in the house of the Lord anywhere we are because this house references a reality, a spiritual meaning that underpins the whole universe. And for me, that's what I came away with, was a wistful hope that even as we reckon with the great sadness of the world and the alienation, that there might be um, a loving kindness that underpins it and makes us able to be beloved children of the house, even in the world as we experience it. And it makes me think that perhaps you know, we're left this question of who is Piranesi. And I think ultimately Piranesi is neither Piranesi nor Matthew Rose Sorensen, but he is a beloved child of the house. And I think that is a very beautiful thing. Well, construction is starting up outside, so I better um, leave you all, but I would love to know what you took away from this book. And I will leave you with Piranesi's final words, which even after all of the tumult and um, the trial and the sadness, the man called Piranesi, Matthew Rose Sorensen, the beloved child of the house, still believes to be true. The beauty of the house is immeasurable. Its kindness 
infinite.